0: Well, we are uh, going to do something just a little different in our studies this morning, which I mentioned last week. And the different element of our study today is that we're going to be taking a break from 1 Samuel, which we've been working our way through for, for quite a while now. And we're going to study Psalm 56. And we're going to do so because Psalm 56 is a poem that David wrote in the midst of the situation we studied last week in 1 Samuel. So now, we know there's this connection between the Psalms and many of David's experiences. The superscript at the beginning of these Psalms, which which Josh began with as he read, is part of the inspired text. It often will set the Psalm in a certain setting in history. So in this case, Psalm 56 is set uh, when the Philistines, the Philistines sees uh, David in Gath. And we studied that portion of 1 Samuel last week, where David is on the run from Saul. Saul uh, wants David dead. He knows that David is a threat to his throne in Israel. Uh, the Lord has anointed David king. Saul has refused to abdicate the throne, even though the Lord has said he's rejected him as king. And now Saul wants David dead. And so David has entered into what uh, we understand to be a, a wilderness-wandering experience. He can't be in Israel because uh, Saul is out to get him. Saul has instructed his entire administration to, to kill David. So Saul's on the run in Israel. David's on the run in Israel. And, and he finds himself, like we saw last week, in the town of Gath, which is one of five major Philistine cities of the day. He's in the town of Gath uh, with this king named Achish. And as David finds himself in Gath, uh, we have to wonder what in the world is going through his mind, because Gath is not only a town uh, of, of uh, centralized enemies to the Israelites, so the Philistines are Israel's arch nemesis, uh, if you like during this time. So David goes to an enemy town, first of all. And 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 not only that, but David goes to the town of, of Gath where Goliath is from, who happens to be the Philistine war hero that David has recently defeated and killed in battle. So we can ask ourselves why in the context of, of fleeing uh, would David ever go to the town of Gath? And we're not given a direct answer, except that we can we can try to connect the dots a bit in that in the David can't be in Israel. Saul is against him. And and maybe as he goes to Gath, uh, the people there will recognize that, well, an enemy of Saul's could be a a help to us, a kind of of mercenary uh, for the Philistines. And and David probably hopes to find a friend there in King Achish, a situation where the enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of thing. So David has gone to Gath. Uh, However, instead of encountering a situation where he can find some rest, maybe get a little reprieve. Certainly, Saul won't pursue him all the way into enemy territory. So, so it's but 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 instead of finding that place of reprieve, um, Saul or David actually finds himself in in quite a troubling position, in that one of Achish's servants recognizes David as the one they sing a particular song about, and you remember the song. The song goes, "Saul has killed his thousands but David, his 10,000s. And so the servant of, of King Achish in Gath sees David. He recognizes David is the one they sing this song about, which is a big problem because the, the Israelites celebrate David in that way with that song after he's completely trounced Philistine forces. So it's a song about David defeating the Philistines. And as a result, instead of David finding a, uh, a warm reception in Gath, David actually finds himself, as is described in that passage, He finds himself in a place of abundant fear. In fact, scholars point out it's the only place in the narrative of David, in in the books of Samuel, it's the only place where David is described as being afraid of of a man, of, of humanity. He's afraid of the Lord in a specific way in 2 Samuel 6. But this is the only place he's actually afraid of humanity. He's deeply afraid, and for obvious reasons. He's in a place where he's extremely threatened. He is the one who's taken out Gath's war hero. Now he's actually seized. He's taken into custody there and he's afraid. And as we studied that last week, we saw how helpful it is to think about those circumstances of fear as they affect life in general. We know that this was written for us as an example. These scriptures were, as Paul tells us. And so as we think about the example that's there, we can take good lessons from David's own context of fear, apply them to our own lives, and be equipped, as it were, for our own wilderness experiences of life. We can be helped to navigate hard days as uh, David's own experience uh, comes to help us. And so and so, in that way, 1 Samuel 21, in the last portion there, verses 10 to 15, is helpful as we look in upon a situation and see what's going on there. We can learn lessons about, about the fears that can come to us as we follow the Lord in a context such as that. We look in on that situation and we're held. But we also recognize that that's only half the picture. Because while we're looking in on all the circumstances that are happening to David, we don't really know how david is responding to all of this except that we know he's very afraid so we get to look in on it but we don't look get to look at this whole set of circumstances from the perspective of david's own heart how how is david the man whom god has promised will be king i mean the anointed king of israel now in enemy philistine territory and in custody with them how is he responding to all of this and in that while we don't have any, any immediate context for that in the, in, the, in the first Samuel narrative, in that we can come to Psalm 56. Because in Psalm 56, we're told David wrote this expression out of his fearful context of being seized in gap. So if you like, first Samuel is looking at fear from the outside in. This is how it can take place and, and function in our lives. We can, be, we can be helped by that. Psalm 56 is looking at fear from the inside out. It gives us this internal process that David walks through as he moves from a place of abundant fear, as, as First Samuel tells us, this place of abundant fear to a place of actual peace and rest by the end of the psalm. His circumstances don't change. He's still going to be in the same circumstances by the end of the psalm. But his process of heart has been such that he's now in a place of rest instead of a place of fear. And so we can see how helpful this is for us as well, because because not only do we know how to need to know uh, what those experiences of fear can look like, but we need to be trained by the scriptures to have an internal process for dealing with these fears as they come, because fears do come. We've said this uh, with some regularity in our studies. Fear is is very definable in in the scriptures in that fear exists at that intersection. Do you remember this? Fear exists at the intersection of inability and vulnerability. That's when we're afraid. When, When I can't do anything about the fact that I'm very much in danger right now. That's when fear happens at the intersection of inability and vulnerability. And that is where David finds himself. And that is where we often find ourselves. Not because one of the servants of, of King Achish is out to get us or anything like that. But we have circumstances in our life that can fill us with fear. As we think about the future, as we navigate health concerns, as we, as we deal with joblessness, as we, as we face those things. Maybe a, a relationship that's just gone, gone, gone sideways and now we're in this place of pain and abandonment. We can face those contexts where we feel our own inability and vulnerability coming together in what could be very destructive ways in our life. Fear unchecked has a unique capacity to destroy so how do we deal with that as gospel people how do we deal with that as we know the lord jesus who comes and who, who who's the one who delivers us ultimately from all our fears how do we walk through those kinds of seasons not just by by thinking about the experiences from the outside looking in but actually working through the process in an inside out kind of way how do we navigate uh, circumstances of fear and that's where psalm 56 comes to give us a great deal of help. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to walk through this psalm, uh, thinking about how David responds to these circumstances of fear. And as we consider David's own response, uh, we're actually brought through a process that can be encouraging uh, in our own lives. So if you have your Bible open, I, I hope you can turn there. Uh, there's Bibles on the back table too if you need one. Uh, but it's good to follow along. We're going to start in the first part up through verse 2 of, of the psalm. And we're going to see the very first thing that David does in this context of fear, in Psalm 56, is he makes a weary plea. He makes a weary plea. And we have to start right from the beginning, just just appreciating the honesty with which David writes his poetry. The honesty of the Psalms are one of the greatest encouragements we have in the ups and downs of life that we that we face david doesn't begin uh, trying to pretend his fear away he doesn't begin but even by immediately folding under all the pressure of his fear but instead he he makes this weary plea before the lord he's very honest and he's turning and he's turning to god and so we see there if you look at the at the verses that this weary plea is is really comprised of of two parts Uh, the first part is is david making this request to god and then David follows that relatively short request up by uh, speaking to God in, in multiple ways about how bad the situation is. So, so David starts with this, with this brief uh, uh, appeal to God. Uh, but again, he begins where we always have to begin in any kind of situation, isn't it? it? Actually, what David says here is the foundation of every prayer we ever make, where he says, be gracious to me, God. David just begins there. I, I, am, I am a person, O Lord, in need of favor that I don't deserve. That's what grace is. I need you to extend kindness to me. He, he, he begins with God that way. He doesn't begin by, by by even speaking about the greatness of God. He doesn't begin about by speaking about the greatness of his, of his need. He just begins by saying he needs grace. I need you, O oh Lord, to extend kindness to me that I don't deserve. In fact, I could full stop my prayer right now, and that would be my full request. Be, be kind to me. I'm needy. So that's where David begins. And then from there, he does go on to unpack things. Ah uh, he, he speaks about why he's in in need of all this of all this help from the Lord. He says, "A man is trampling me." In fact, the Hebrew text literally reads, "A man is panting after me it, It's imagery that reflects like a dog's persistent tracking of its prey as man is chasing after him and And as we remember the story from last week we we know we can make a pretty good guess as to who this specific man in view is. It, it has to be the servant of King Achish who recognized David and his and is and is after king achish to do away with with david who killed the philistine. So so achish is a, the the servant of achish he's against david. We've got to get rid of him. A uh, man is is chasing hard after me david is saying. And so we can put that together in the context it's got to be this guy. Uh but david is not just afraid and and weary crying out to god because of that one man. He goes on uh, to say that not only does this man fight and seek to oppress me all day long, but in verse 2 um It's not just one guy who's after him. He says, my adversaries, plural, they trample me all day, for many arrogantly fight against me. So so David has this immediate concern, presumably with the servant of Achish, who's got it in for him. But as he describes his situation to the Lord, he speaks about all that's going on, and and that ultimately David's in a situation which, which one commentator describes as doubly circled. He's doubly circled. So on the one hand, David is surrounded by the enemies there in in, in, uh, the Philistine city. But not only that, he's actually encircled. He's being chased by enemies from his own own nation, from Israel themselves. They're all after him. So so David is encircled, in a sense, by enemies all around. Everybody wants him dead. And and the situation is just simply that bad. And then here's where we get a glimpse into David's weariness here. He he repeats this twice, once in verse 1, once in verse 2. He basically says they're all out to get me and then he says they're out to get me all day long all day long he says it twice now 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 we know david has to be exaggerating because at some point in this he had a moment in his day to write a poem and i don't think he was writing it while he was running around right but we get the we get the we get the figurative exaggeration that's going on here david is saying in in a sense that he's under this unremitting stress in his life there's 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 nothing relaxing nothing slacking there is this incessant pursuit of him in which he finds no reprieve so he's wearied by this all day long they're after him they're out to get him whether it's in israel whether it's in gath there's just no place where he can find rest which incidentally helps us make sense of the description of this psalm Uh, as it stated earlier in the superscript in those tiny words at the top of the psalm Again, they're part of the inspired text. And this helps us understand why David said what he said there. Because you notice that David says, this is a poem according to, in the CSB, it says, a silent dove far away. Or if you're reading in the ESV, it says, according to the dove on the far off terebinths. Terebinths are trees, right? The, the, the Psalms, they sometimes have these different and, and, and kind of mysterious headings at times. Um, but, but just to make the Hebrew a little, more, a little more wooden, we could translate what David says there as this is a psalm of, of the silent dove, we could say in the far off oak trees. That, that's, that's the tone that David is setting for this psalm, which doesn't mean too much to us until we set it against the psalm that comes right before this. Because in Psalm 55, in the middle of that psalm, another psalm where David's dealing with great distress, he's been betrayed by a close friend. In the middle of that psalm, David says this. He says, if only I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and find rest. How far away I would flee. And then here in this psalm, as the the psalter is being put together, he sets this whole poem to that tune. A dove flying far away to a tree. So so this poem is set to the tune of, of I just don't want to be here anymore. I just don't want to be in this situation anymore. The tune of my heart, that the sensation that I'm trying to communicate, David is telling us, is is that whether I'm pursued all day in Israel or pursued all day long in Gath, I I just want to be a dove and fly to a faraway tree. That's what I want. So so we see how that sets up a a context here where David is, is weary. He's making this weary plea to the Lord, be gracious to me, extend kindness to me, this beyond anything I deserve extend kindness O oh lord because all day long i'm pressed and i just want to be gone as we think about our own experiences we can very much uh, identify with the way david feels in the midst of this wilderness experience probably all of us can in some way or another this, this is this is where david begins in his circumstances of of, of deep stress deep anxiety we can begin here too Because when we're facing circumstances that cause us fear, that cause us those sleepless nights, we recognize how the scriptures begin to equip us to deal with with those things. Be be gracious to me, O Lord, because this whole thing is wearing me out, and I just want to be far, far away from all this. That is not an unspiritual prayer. That's not a prayer uh, that a a person who's who's, uh, faithful, turning to the Lord, Uh, cannot make oftentimes in our christian life we feel like those prayers of discouragement have no place in the life of faith and that's the one one of the things that the psalmist helps us with those prayers of discouragement those prayers of just being all done with everything those prayers absolutely do have a place in our life of faith and david demonstrates that i just want to be gone i just want to be out of here in fact one of the ways we know this is not unspiritual is david addresses the whole psalm to the choir master so he's actually saying to the lead singer of all Israel, make sure you guys are singing this in church. Okay. So David starts his poem in this way. And we can, we can start this way too, completely honest before the Lord as David is here. That's how he starts. Um, but as we must note, while David starts there, he doesn't stay there. And, that, and that's important too. He starts with this, but he doesn't stay in this, in this posture. And you notice this as, as we keep going, because after making his weary plea in verses one and two, uh david takes what we'll call a critical pause in verses three and four he takes this this critical pause um i have i have a couple friends in the uh, in the law enforcement community maybe some of you if you have some military uh experience i know some of you have uh you might have heard this as well but but i'm told that that a big part of training in the in the profession of law enforcement at least is centered on what's called stress control uh, so the idea is that when you get into a situation that's particularly dangerous, a person needs to be able to, to as, as they put it, defy the natural stress response that comes and instead have our have our physicality trained to respond to stress in a productive way rather than a panic way. We see why that would be important if you're a, if you're a police officer or whatever. And, and I'm told that part of the stress response training is that at the onset of the stress, uh, the, the officer, or whoever it might be, they're, they're taught to apply, uh, this particular sequence of pause breathe think act so you're in, in a stressful circumstance whatever it may be there are plenty of those in in, in that line of work and and the first and, and the process they're trained to work through they practice working through is pause breathe think act which makes a lot of sense because what do we do in a situation that's scary and stressful even in our own lives what do we do what do i do well i act before i think all the time right And then as unnatural as it seems, we we start taking those those really short and shallow breaths, you know, which deprive our body of oxygen. The mind gets cloudy. All of that kind of stuff goes on. So professionals are trained to respond to stress in a practiced and measured way, beginning with this pause. Pause, even just for a microsecond. Pause, breathe, think, and then act. And and there's a sense in which David employs a similar framework here in his own situation. uh, Because what we see is in the immediacy of his stress and fear, in the immediacy even of his weariness, David doesn't panic, but instead he pauses in verses three and four, and, wh- and what does he do in this critical pause? Well, he he defies, if we can use that language, he defies his own natural emotional state by making a confession of faith, and then this is critical to see in verses three and four. So David says, "When I'm afraid." So so, so he's very much acknowledging that he's not in a place of rest, but a place of fear. The fear is very real. He is in that spot where inability and vulnerability have dramatically intersected in his life. He's fearful, but he pauses and he says to the Lord, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. It is this act of calculated defiance against the immediate feelings of fear that rise and could overtake David's heart. But before the fear can get the better of him, he pauses and he says in his fear, I will determine to trust in the Lord. In fact, he gets even more specific in verse four, where he says, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. So let me, let me just ask you this. What, what word is praised, if we can put it that way, what word is esteemed in our life when the fear sets in what word do we set on high in our hearts in the anxious days oftentimes for me in anxiety producing situations i find that it's the words that support the fear i'm experiencing that become most elevated in my heart and in my mind right in those circumstances words that make the fear more fearish are given primary place in my heart words that support all the potential disasters that could that could ever possibly take place. That's what gets set up in my mind and starts running, starts running at cycles. Those are the words that start occupying a high place in my heart. But David has he has tactics, if you like, for this assault of fear. And you see this. Because instead of fearish words ruling him, instead he exercises this critical pause. He's he's defying the emotions of fear that are percolating. And instead he exercises himself in this response of faith. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I won't be afraid. So so David centers his trust on God and on what God says. And what has God said to David? When he speaks about this word I hope in, and he'll repeat it twice again later on in the psalm. Yahweh's word, the covenant God's word is what I'm hoping in. What word is David speaking about there? Because David's not sitting in in his place of custody in Gath with his iPhone open to his Bible app, reading about all the promises of God so what word is david referencing here well we know the story and through the prophet samuel god's word to david has been what you'll be king you're my anointed king i'm going to set you up as the ruler of my people israel that's the word of the lord that has come to david it's a promise of a future position and so there's david sitting in the most non-king of israel conditions possible he's seized by israel's enemies and what words is David disciplining himself to have win in his mind during this time of fear? Well, it's not, it's not words that support the fears. It's words that reflect God's promises. This won't be true for me if, if, if God has promised me the throne. That's where David sets his mind. So, so in our times of fear, this is just vital for us to see. In our times of fear, we're trained by David's poem to defy those emotions of fear. Defy, not disregard. He doesn't disregard them. He says he's afraid. He acknowledges it. Fear's real. But we defy those emotions of fear by centering our trust on the person of God and the promises he makes. And what are those promises? Well, in David's case, it's a promise of future position. And we can run through the scriptures and see all kinds of promises. We do have our iPhones with our Bible apps open. We have all kinds of promises of God that we can center our mind on. Things like where Jesus says, Jesus says to us, you know, if you're, if you're really troubled with anxiety, what you need to do is you need to go outside and you need to watch the birds for a while. And as you watch the birds for a while, you need to see how God provides food for them. Isn't that amazing? He provides for the crows out of my garbage, but, but they're out there. You know, the provision comes, Right. You need to watch that for a while, and then you need to make this adjustment in your thinking, Jesus says. You need to know that if God cares for the birds that much, how much more is he going to care for you? And so we get get that adjustment where Jesus promises God's care for us because we're of more value than birds, Jesus said. And so we can go through the scriptures and find those places, but even in the immediacy of David's own uh, situation here in the word that's come to him, we can find uniqueness in David's promise because David has been promised a high position by the Lord as he sits in this extremely low estate. And we need to recognize that the the trajectory of that, the picture that that gives us is something that is very applicable to our seasons of fear. We sit in those places of low esteem, those places of low estate where the sorrow is real, the terror even comes to us. And where where do we center our hope? Where do we center our mind when it comes to the word of God? Well, we focus it, don't we, on the fact that God has promised ultimately to lift us up. That's why why Paul can speak the way he does about momentary affliction, preparing him for future glory. The momentary afflictions we face are never the final word in our life. We set our minds on the promises that come to us through Christ and that our ultimate position is a high position. It is exalted. Ultimately, it's resurrected with the Lord Jesus himself. And so we're able to set our minds, certainly on immediate things. I can go out and look at the birds and find encouragement in God's promises but through the immediacy of that natural aspect of our world. And then we can also set our minds even further out, as David will by the end of this psalm, knowing that because God is for me, I will walk with him in the light of life forever. And so we adjust our minds these way, in these ways. And we need to be able to take these, these critical pauses when the fear sets in. Because, because when the Lord uh, speaks to us, even through a psalm here, and brings us this encouragement, it reframes how we often can deal with the immediacy of fear's reaction in our life. it, it is interesting, isn't it, how, how the dialogue we allow to run in our minds starts to be defining for us. You notice that? And if we start saying anxiety is winning, guess what happens? anxiety starts winning that's just how it goes if i start saying don't order pizza pretty soon i'm on the phone because i've been thinking too much about pizza ordering my pizza right our minds just run in those ways and what we what we learn from what we learn from david in this context is he's arresting that that mental circuit that's running he's not going to focus on the on the fears that would otherwise bring him down but he's setting his mind on the promises of god's word instead of saying oh this will be the end of me instead of saying i can't keep going instead of saying i'm done it's over the long long days have finally taken their toll and and it's all over for me now instead he takes this pause and he says i'm going to rest in what you said i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to allow the thoughts that complete a course in my mind to be centered on the promises that you've made which is which is exactly again what paul speaks to us about doing as as he as he writes to believers when he says take every thought captive according to christ those thoughts that run can be destructive and he says uh, thoughts that are centered on the truth of who jesus is and what it means to know him and follow him faithfully those are paramount for us. so instead of fear thoughts overwhelming us and running those full circuits constantly i'll say things like i'm going to obey the lord i'm going to trust in him and his word i'm going to put his truth in the highest place i'm going to trust in him and i won't be afraid and so david he takes this this critical pause and then you notice he actually ends this section by asking a question. He's not living in a land of, of rainbow, rainbows and unicorns or anything like that. He, he's a realist. In end of verse 4, he says, uh, what can, the word is flesh there in Hebrew, uh, what can flesh, what can mere mortals, what can mankind do to me? Now, now, this is going to prove to be a very important question to ask. What can mankind do to me? We can set our context. What, what can the things that make me afraid do to me? The, the answer to that question is not nothing they can do stuff to us but what we see in the next in the next section is that david actually answers his question what can mere mere man what can mortals do to me he answers his neck this question in the next section by setting up a contrast so so look at this contrast he sets up next um as we look at verses five to nine he contrasts what mere mortals can do to me with what what, what god does for me so he sets things he sets things up there so look at verses five to nine and and we. And we start with the answer to that question, what can, what can flesh do to me? Verses 5 to 7, flesh can do a whole bunch of things to David. Right? If you just read those verses, they can, they can hurt David by twisting his words all day long. There's the all day long thing again. He's still feeling that pervasiveness, that pressure. They can twist up his words. They can think up evil against David. They actively work to harm David. Verse 5, they wait to kill David. Verse 6, I mean, this is a lot of bad stuff. They can do a lot of stuff to him. In fact, verse 6, where we read that they watch his steps literally they're they're at david's heels they're chasing him to destroy him this is what they can do and with all that they seem to be getting away with it because in verse seven david says to god will they escape you know they're gonna are they gonna actually pull all this off he asked the lord to, to to uh act in his anger and bring down the nations now it's not because david doesn't like the nations in the next psalm david is going to be praising the lord from in the midst of the nations So it's not like he's saying the nations all around are are bad and there's no hope. But he's got two particularly nasty nations surrounding him at the moment. And he's asking the Lord to take him down, rescue him from this situation. So he's calling uh, for God's righteous anger to be exercised against those who are devising all this evil against him. Because what can mere mortals do? Well, they could do a whole bunch of bad stuff to David. Chase him down, try to kill him all day long. They're after him. All of this kind of stuff, which is pretty bad. However, it's not enough to be effective because now David sets that in contrast with what the Lord does in verses 8 and 9. What does God do? Well, verse 8, the Lord keeps a record of David's wanderings. Okay, so so David David's displaced in the wilderness condition that he's facing right now. It isn't just known by the Lord, but it's actually being actively recorded, as it were, by the Lord the lord's seeing and he's noting the dark circumstances david is in and not just that but the lord is keeping david's tears in a bottle i wonder when when the hardship comes and the fear sets in do you ever feel like you like you cry unnoticed tears private tears tears that nobody can relate to tears that maybe nobody even knows about but you but we see here that in the midst of the fearful circumstances, the Lord doesn't just know about the tears. It's as if He collects the tears to keep remembering them. And, and then it's as if the Lord writes down your sorrows in a book, verse 8. So He knows and He's keeping track. And what's the outcome of all this awareness that God is exercising toward us in our circumstances? What's the result? Does he just know about the wanderings, keep track of the tears, write down the sorrows and, and shake his head going, oh, how sad for him. That That is really hard. Right? Is God just a really great, big, friendly sympathizer who's good at journaling? No. No, God sees, he notes it. And what does he do? Well, David says he actually works victory as he sees these things going on. He works victory for me. Verse nine, as we call to him in these tear-filled days, our enemies retreat, David says. They don't win because this i know david says god is for me the final word in my life will not be me defeated by all that causes my fear the final word in my life will be sure deliverance from all harm you see that's the contrast that he's setting up mere man can do some stuff but they can't defeat me the lord he notes it all down and he delivers and, and as we get to that point that's where the peace and rest start to set in for david bad stuff can be happening but god knows and god acts he's not aloof he's not inattentive and he's powerful to rescue so so it's this contrast we linger on attempts at defeat will ultimately ultimately be thwarted by god's deliverance because while mortals might be against me david says god is for me so so david is renewed in this and his heart is lifted up which is exactly where we see things going now for david in the final section so in 10 to 13 now david moves from a from a primary place of fear to a primary place of, of peace you see in verses 10 and 11 he repeats that affirmation of trust that he made earlier only he gives it a double repetition now with yahweh's name around yahweh's word. So it's in your word, it's in the covenant God's word that I'm going to hope. He's setting his mind on truth that is conducive to life coming from God. He's not setting his mind on on the fears that assail him and all of those things. He restates his affirmation of faith. I'm going to trust in the Lord. And then in verse 12, he responds in worship. David says he's going to make vows to the Lord. He'll offer Thanksgiving sacrifices to the Lord. He's using worship language here because God is the preserving and delivering God. And David is committed to worshiping him. Which, of course, centers us right at the middle of what the gospel is all about. We are not worshipers of the living God. We say this almost every time at the beginning on Sunday. We we, we are not worshipers of the living God because we hope if we worship him long enough, he'll he'll get rid of those fears for us eventually. We're not worshipers of the living God because we hope if we just do this right and long enough, then he'll bring us the deliverance. We've got to bring up our quotient of goodness before he's going to act on our behalf. No, that is not the gospel. The good news is we are in a place of sorrow, we are in a place of fear, and the Lord is the one who is for us in that place. And as a result, we respond to his kindness by saying, I will worship you. I offer you praise because you're the one who's for me. It's responsive. Ultimately, it's because of what Jesus has done to save us on the cross that we offer him our life of worship. He's rescued us from situation far greater than gath and Akish and all of these things the, the lord jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness transferred us into the kingdom of life all of these kinds of things we respond in worship even as we still sit in places of sorrow at times okay. recognizing the lord is for us even as we still sit in places of sorrow and we actually need to see that's what's going on for david here david says things now like you rescued me from death, even my feet from stumbling, to walk before God in the light of life. Now, now that's a very interesting statement to make, and, and I'll tell you why. Be, because David is making that confident affirmation of God's rescue while he's still in custody. He praises God for deliverance while he's still in the context that's scary. Now, now, now at first pass, it can sound... Like, David has been rescued by the end of this psalm. It sounds like that. David, I mean, in English, we have it translated in the past tense. You rescued me from death. It's like David is looking back now as he's leaving the town of Gath, going, you rescued me, and I'm going to praise you. That's how it sounds when we translate it into English. But that's not actually the the case here. Um, One of the ways that the Hebrew language is different than English is that it actually doesn't have tenses. So the Hebrew language doesn't have past, present, future tense, like we have in English. Um, which can make things difficult to translate, it, uh, to translate at times. Hebrew has something actually that's called aspect, which, which again, it messes with our English translation, but I won't go into all that, but, but the aspect of this verb rescued here is not something that, that, that's looking back on a situation that's taking pl- taken place in the past, but it's looking at action as depicted in its totality. So, so there's not chronology here, there's just completeness, there's just totalness here. So, so David, you get get why this is important, because David's not saying, oh, you rescued me, now I'm happy. He's actually going to say that in Psalm 34, which we'll look at in a couple weeks, which is totally legitimate. But that's not what he's saying here. He's actually saying, I know you, O Lord, that you were for me, and I recognize that the totality of your action ultimately in my life is that of rescue from death and preservation to walk with you in the light of life forever. There's a totality in view, not a chronology. And that's important for us to have our minds around because this ultimately is what is depicted in David's posture of rest. He's no, longer, he's no longer overrun by this fear. You notice in the beginning how he says, God be gracious to me. And then he says a whole bunch of stuff about the people who are against him. Now we're at the end and what's, and what's present? Only words about what God has done for him. He's completely moved away from the from the complaint, from the lament of all that's going on against him because he centered his mind on the reality of what God will do for him and the totality of God's action. He is the rescuing God. As David sits in his sorrow, he knows this. And as we sit in our sorrow, as we sit in our fear, we have to know this is true. That no matter what, the ultimate totality, the completeness of God's work for us, if we could step back and look out at all of our life on the final day from the end, we are going to say, you have rescued me. You've rescued me. And that's a confession that we don't wait for the final day to make, but we make in the midst of things because we know exactly what David knows. God is for us. It's this. Is this uh, terminology here that Jesus picks up on in John chapter 8, when Jesus said, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. But what will he have? He'll have the light of life. This light of life promise at the end of the psalm is ultimately something that's fulfilled. And what Jesus uh, Jesus accomplishes, because darkness isn't the final word. Death isn't the final word. And no matter what fears may assail us, even in this life, those are never the final word. Through God's climactic anointed king, as we're with Jesus, ultimately life is the final word. He rescued it. I sit in the darkness and I say, you rescued me. I sit in the times of fear, I say, you rescued me. I sit in those times of hardship, I sit in those times of confusion, and I say, you, Lord Jesus, rescued me. And we can look at that with past tense in view. We know he did because of what he did at the cross. That's the, that's the refrain from our part in this morning, isn't it? How do we know God loves us? God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how I know God loves me. And I look forward to the climactic reality of that as I center my hope, not on the immediacy of getting out of all of this right now. David's not out of it and he won't be for a while. But he centers his hope on the fact that God who is for him is the God of rescue. And that's what we said hope. The God who is for us is the God of rescue. The cross proves it. The character of God as defined throughout all of the scriptures, proves it. And we rest in that care, allowing that the track that runs through our mind when the fears begin to assail. And so as we think about all these things, we can, we can just be helped in a practical way. Uh, fear comes to David, and he, and he equips us with his poem. And we're afraid, first of all, we can appeal to the Lord in our weariness. You know, just, just be gracious, God, all day long. This is happening to me. I wish I was a bird far away. Feel the God in our weariness. Then we take that critical pause. It's going to be the word of the Lord, not the threat of the fears that starts running through my mind. And then we reflect on a contrast these circumstances of fear, they can do some stuff to me. But God is for me and they won't ultimately defeat me. And in the end, I'm going to see the Lord is the one. He keeps my tears in a bottle. He knows and ultimately he's going to bring me rescue through the Lord Jesus. So we can be helped just in this process of navigating those kinds of circumstances. What can mere mortals do to me? I know this. God is for me. So I will walk before God in the light of life. And that's our hope and that's our rest. And that's why David's at peace by the end. And that's why we can be at peace too. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. And we pray it would come into our hearts in a way that encourages us. That it would give us the gospel equipment we need to follow you through the darker days of this life. Ultimately knowing that uh, the future is secure through Jesus. And life is ours forever. We thank you for that promise. We thank you for the cross and resurrection. Are the proof that that represents, and we rest in that. In Jesus' name, amen.